Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The managerial hot seat is once again the focus of the Gegenpod. Former Premier League star Michael Bridges is in to face the music as a couple of gaffers that he backed have been given the sack. We've also got fellow former Premier League player Thomas Sorensen and former Matilda Amy Duggan to go through all the biggest talking points in football. I'm your host, Teo Pelizzeri. This is the Optus Sport Football Podcast. Let's get in to the Gegenpod. Yes, welcome to the Gagan Pod. We've got one of our regular crews that we love to chat to back assembled. Michael Bridges in the UK, former Matilda Amy Duggan and former Premier League star Thomas Sorensen. Thomas, we start with uh, you today. Uh, welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We had a really interesting chat last week with Kieran McGuire and Mark Schwarzer about the finances of football, but it's nice just to get back into some matters on the pitch this week, isn't it? Yeah, it was it was great to hear about the finances of football last week. It's what runs football, but uh, you know what really matters is what's going on on the pitch. And I think we've already had some some great things with the uh, the Liverpool Everton game this week. Uh, Liverpool bouncing back. So so much happening and so much coming up with Arsenal and Man City as well. So I can't wait for it. Amy Duggan, it's a big week for the Matildas coming up, and we'll get to all things women's football later in the show, but how do we find you today? Oh, I'm well. I don't think it can ever be better than when there's, you know, football not just uh, on a weekend, but all throughout the week. And as you said, the Cup of Nations kicking off tomorrow night up in Gosford. Looking forward to that. And then the big game here against Spain, the rematch, which we really, uh, I think Australians want to really win on Sunday. So big week of football coming up for me and, and super excited ahead of it. And I've opened with a couple of softballs for our panellists because our third member of the panel today is here to face the music today. <laughs> Michael Bridges, welcome back to the Gagan Pod. How do we find you today, given the trials and tribulations of a couple of uh, gaffers that you have backed on this very show? Sadly, neither of them are now employed. Yes, absolutely incredible. I managed to dodge bullets on and off the field last week because I was ignoring everybody's calls. I went into hiding and I was actually over in America um, with Leeds United doing doing some work on behalf of the football club as an ambassador. And I was in Phoenix and there was actually a drive-by shooting. So when I'm saying there was bullets going left, right and centre, I was genuinely meaning that. Um, it was a scary moment over there and obviously things that have gone on at Leeds United has been absolutely incredible. And I didn't want to go there and come on the podcast because I knew Mark Swartz would be giving me grief. Well, uh, Schwartz is not here today, but we still need to put some hard <laughs> questions to you, Bridgie. So, Jesse Marsh. Gone from Leeds United. Give us your assessment of where they are battling relegation. Uh, also, the club's struggles to find a potential replacement for Jesse Marsh. But let's talk about the the man on his exit. Was it the right call, and was now the right time? Do you know what it is? It was a, it was a huge call. Um, I, I felt that Jesse, when I, I haven't worked with him pre-season and seen what he was all about, you know, he, he talked the talk. I thought he's um, the way he presented the analysis to the to the players was was absolutely excellent. The way he conducted himself, um, and he was so charismatic, and he you know he made myself and Tony Drago feel so welcome to the football club. So the respectful nature of the man was absolutely incredible. Um, and trying to change from one philosophy that they'd learned under Bielsa where it was press at all costs, but that when they won the ball, you know, the Leeds United played with quite an exp- expansive game and they made the pitch really wide. With Jesse, they played a very, very narrow system. You know, like Jack Harrison was looking at an England call-up when he was playing under Bielsa and he found it very restricted under, um, you know, Jesse Marsh because they played so narrow and it was all about the counter-press, winning the ball back. So there were some players, some players thrived off it and some players didn't. And the fans were slowly getting, you know, early on were getting won over by Jesse because Chelsea, there was a result, 3-0 win, beating Liverpool as well. But there was obviously things that weren't happening. Now, if you're not getting results and your fans start to turn on you, things are going to happen. And I just felt that it was a massive, massive call 
for Leeds United when they realise that a few teams around them, especially Wolves, getting Lopetegui in and seeing the results in the spin and Aston Villa as well, getting Unai Emery in, I think they've hit the, the panic button and they thought we need to do something quick. Now, the only thing that's gone against Leeds is Sean Dyche now has gone to Everton after Frank Lampard survived and now they've found themselves, sometimes it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't, they find themselves now in a predicament that some managers are turning them down because they want long-term security and is that on offer? Um, so it's going to be interesting to see who is available, what contract offer is available or is it going to be with the interim manager at the moment? Because I know that they were really, really keen on um, Real Vallecano manager um, Ariola. Um, whether Now, you know, they're sitting really, really well in, in La Liga, fifth. They're not going to let the manager go. Are they going to be able to get him? Not at this moment in time. So do you just stick with the status quo at this moment in time? Steven Gerrard's name's been mentioned. Nuno Espirito Santo's name's been mentioned. Now again, are they, is it a case of give them till the end of the season? Are they going to risk that to have another tarnish on their CV if Leeds do get relegated? Um, or are they going to get a massive bonus to keep them up? So I'm still in the wilderness here. I'm hoping the right decision comes from this. And they get the right man, but I think Leeds United missed a trick um, in in missing out on um, Sean Dyche just to give them some lift and some boost. Not that I enjoy watching his his tactics, mind. I've said that about Burnley when he was there. I told you I wouldn't watch them, but um, it's it's a massive few weeks coming up. So you know they got Everton and then Southampton. Uh, so it's a big two weeks for Leeds United, which I think will determine their future in the Premier League. Tommy, having heard. Bridgie's thoughts on the Marsh situation and the Leeds situation. What direction are you pushing that club at the moment, given that it does, as Bridgie mentioned, seem as though all of the other potentially threatened candidates, except for West Ham, have already made the switch this season? You know, I think Bridgie laid it out really well. I think uh, it's a really tough situation. Um, Obviously, the interim manager is going to get a a shot now, you know, to potentially get them back on track. uh, and again, you know, we, we talked about Postacoglu, obviously, he would be an ideal uh, replacement, but he's not going to come. So I think they're ending up in a situation with everyone, Corberon at West Brom has been mentioned, who was obviously there at the club before, um, but they just can't seem to get their hands on them. And, you know, let's hope it doesn't come back and bite them, that this decision uh, turned out to be the totally wrong one and they should have kept uh, Jesse Marsh because... It looks like he might be getting another job now. I think having a club that doesn't have a plan when they make a decision like this always leaves you open for trouble, especially with the movement that we've seen and we knew who was on the market and who was off the market. And unless Leeds were able to... um, have someone lined up before they let Jesse go. They were always going to be in this predicament, especially after the movement we've seen. Um, is he the last coach to go? Don't know. Can can we see the manager bounce if someone does come in? I think the problem is is when big name coaches start turning uh, turning teams like this down. And you mentioned and Postacoglu. I, I don't think he would be going anywhere, and I don't think he'd look at this even just yet. And I think he he's just waiting to get two hands on that next trophy, and then he'll make a decision about what he does for the future. And do you go to a team that might potentially be relegated? You know, all these questions have to be thrown out there. But when big names are turning you down, you have to start going further and further and further down the list. And and with the chance of them potentially being relegated, it's not such an attractive prospect now. Yeah, it's fascinating, Amy. Do you know what it is with the, the managerial roundabout? You know, Jesse Marsh has obviously been released by Leeds United and been sacked. And it was nice to, to have a chat with him. I actually spoke to him today on the telephone um, because I was in America, obviously, when the, when the news was, was broke. So after what he'd done and what I'd, you know, the relationship we built up during pre-season and at the football club, it was nice to have a chat with him today, wish him all the best in the future. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the big talk over here um, is that he's in line for the Southampton job. So within the space of six, you know, six to seven days, he could be looking at getting a new job in the Premier League. And, um, you know, what what more incentive would he need than to try and keep Southampton, if he does get it, in the league and to see the team that sacked him go down? So it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks on all fronts um, regarding Southampton looking for a new manager, Leeds looking for a new manager, and then the next few matches that are coming up involving Leeds United, Everton and Southampton. So it's going to be a fascinating few weeks in the Premier League. Um, you know, and I, and I, I did wish Jesse all the best, um, but I hope Leeds United do make the right decision and find the... Find the, the main person. Bridgie, we, we can't avoid Nathan Jones in Southampton either. It's the third shortest stint for a permanent manager in the history of the Premier League. Only Frank De Boer 
at Crystal Palace and Les Reed at Charlton were shorter serving. Nathan Jones, 13 games total, eight games in the Premier League. You you backed him. You were confident about him when he was hired uh, and got off to that rocky start. How is it that it just never clicked for him and was a misfire from minute one? Do you know what it is? The, the, the reason I backed him is because the, the standard of football that he was playing with, the budget that he was on at, at Luton Town... The the accolades he got from his fellow colleagues in the game as well that had seen him operate and how he worked. However, there is a what what's let him down. There's no, you know, we, we do the media. You know, me and Amy and Thomas and yourself were in the, involved in the media as well. The 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 biggest job I find when I've watched and observed Premier League and uh, not just Premier League but the elite managers around the world, there is so much to do with the media, the before the game interviews, the day before interviews, the after the game interviews, and sadly, Nathan Jones has found himself in the firing line because of his interviews and the interview process that he did a few weeks ago, um, before the loss to Wolves, um, when obviously they should have won playing against ten men. That was the the one that brought the camels back. The interview he was talking about, oh, the being the best team in Europe with Luton. We had X, you know, you know me with tail with the XP goals and all that kind of stuff and whatever that produces. I hate all them stats. He was saying the possession, um, you know, not conceding from corners. So you're talking about a team. You're not there anymore. The players don't want to hear that. The fans don't want to hear that. And the the, the new owners don't want to hear that. So he he really really lost his way. And I felt he lost a lot of credibility in the media. I'm not taking anything away from his coaching. Because he, he has he has got the, the the runs on the board with that with Luton Town, he had a chance at the Premier League. He's not going to turn that down. However, I wish to God that the the club had protected him more from the media side, and he had somebody that was able to say, "You can't say this. You can't do that." Before he went to the meetings, because the journals took him to town, and he hung himself out a dry mate, and I, that is what has cost him his job, sadly. So he learned from it, but it's um, it's too too long gone now, and this could affect him in the future. Bridgie, surely the answer was to win to win more games on the field. You can't purely blame his conduct in the media for his demise. Where, where were the results? No, totally. It's it's about winning games. Yeah, and he didn't win games. That's it. But obviously, the, the, just because of two weeks ago, the, the stuff. But you, the players had heard a few weeks prior that as well, before the last interview, that they couldn't perform. He didn't have the players at his disposal. You don't want to hear that crap. You know what I mean? That that's you're meant to get them on side and get them galvanised. So the 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 fact that the results didn't go his way and the fact that the media absolutely destroyed him, uh, it, it, absolutely inevitable. And I think Southampton made the right call. And I, I eat humble pie. Don't worry about that. I, I really wanted him to do well. I feel like Bridget, there's a little more to this too because it's not just about not getting results. Like you mentioned, galvanising the squad. I don't think the fans saw any improvement at all, yeah. like at all. So you know they were just plodding along. Um, not really growing you, you know when a team's in a lull there's always positives to take from it and i feel like there really wasn't a lot of positives to take out of this yeah. southampton but the squad, fans but weren't even overwhelmed by it at all amy no no they weren't but you're right the stuff that you know he's known to be funny but there is a point to where you know you have to put on your serious pants and and actually answer yeah. the questions that are being thrown at you in a serious sense that you understand it's a problem and you're going to deal with it. And unfortunately, he didn't know how to flick that switch. And you're right, the club probably should have looked after him better in that sense. But it also goes back to being authentically yourself, doesn't it? You either love him or you hate him. And, and unfortunately, when you're a character like this, you are going to be divisive. Some people are going to find him funny. Football purists are going to find him absolutely ridiculous. Well, you, you've put up a, a fairly stern defence of uh, Nathan Jones there, Michael. Admirable, I must say. Thomas, the Southampton situation, uh, do you think this is a Southampton problem or was this a Nathan Jones problem? And, and where do you attribute the balance of the issues that the club currently faces? You know, I think it's probably a, a bit of everything. Uh, but yeah, there, there, there is a... I think a history a little bit with uh, Nathan Jones. I think uh, you know I saw it uh, firsthand when he when he was at Stoke. Uh, he he is a you know he he want things his own way. I think he he's a little sort of bulldozer like. He comes in and uh, probably robs a few people up the wrong way. Certainly happened at at Stoke, and he he ran out his his welcome within I think 30, 30 games or something. Um, you know, it seems at least there's been similar things going on behind the scenes at Southampton that he, you know, he obviously questioned that he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. And uh, I think they seem, they've always been pretty set, even on the Hasselhudel, they, ha they have a strategy, the whole club is set up in a certain way. And 
and um, you know they, uh, there's there's been some 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 things going on there, and he alluded to it, but also his personality. I think we saw in that interview, that famous uh, <laughs> press conference, that you know he's also to blame. I think he uh, he he is a bit of a weird character, and um, you know the the things he came out and, and said, you you can't say them publicly. <laughs> you have to you you have to keep that within uh, <laughs> the four walls of of uh, of the club. And, and I think that was his demise. I think he, he deserved to be sacked with that and certainly lost the dressing room. Uh, I would certainly have uh, lost my faith in him if I, if I was a player saying, saying those things. Bridgie, same question to you. How much of this is Southampton's problem? We've seen the new owners come in. They came in talking tough like they wanted to be the next Red Bull group of clubs. They went for a transfer strategy which was buy young and buy players with upside with a view to profiteering off them rather than buying for the now, especially when you're a team that needs to survive. And then they sacked Ralph Hasenhutl, who, for all intents and purposes, I mean, and with the benefit of hindsight, appeared to have been doing a marvellous job uh, getting results out of them. So how much of this is Southampton's problem as a club? And do you see any avenue or road for them to avoid relegation from here? Well, I mean, Southampton have always been one of them clubs that have really had a good vision. They've always had a good, you know, psych on what they are about and who they are and what they stand for. We've seen many players over the years, Gareth Bale, Theo Walcott, move on to bigger and better things from the academy, and they've got no problem in selling some of their best academy players. However, I think what the the, the new ownership and what has gone on, they've tried to do a bit of a Brentford where you know they, they're getting players in to give them a second chance now when and, and youngsters to try and make profit on them like you said tail you can only do that with so many players you can't have a whole squad of players like this because it just shows that they are not good enough they haven't got the the knowledge and the how when when i would say the, the crap hits the fan you know me and thomas were in that situation with Sunderland in a relegation battle and sadly we we did get relegated you learn from it and you become a lot more mature when you go through the the process the second time round so i really think that this the the new ownership or whatever has gone on behind the scenes they've just lost they they've they've got no vision they don't know what they want to be Hassan Hutton was a major player, not only in that football club for the first team, but the whole academy and all the coaches that he's taken under his wing to develop. And again, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. And they, they've got themselves in this predicament and they've got to get themselves out of it. And sadly, I don't think they are going to. I really think Southampton are doomed because of what has gone on in the last, I would say, since well, since the start of the season, definitely with the quality that they've had. Um, and it just shows how good Hassan Hootl has done with such an average, average squad. And now you get somebody and that thinks he's coaching one of the best teams in Europe in Luton Town, but he's actually coaching one of the worst in Southampton in Europe. And I think they're doomed, mate. I really, really do. And 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 they deserve it as well for the way that for the manner which which they've um, abused the the system, I believe. All right, let's take a look at who else is on the hot seat. We've had so many sackings this season, but. Could there still be the end of the road for David Moyes, maybe Patrick Vieira, or maybe even Gary O'Neill and Bournemouth as they continue to struggle? Amy, it seems as though the sack race has come up on the Gagan pod uh, about once every two weeks so far this season. Are we done? Do we have our 20 managers... Well, our our, twen- our, our sacking is done, at least. We haven't got new Leeds managers and Southampton managers in just yet. But of the 18 remaining managers... Is this going to get us to the finish line? Honestly, Teo, I cannot tell you. It feels like a million years ago we we're talking about Scott Parker. So the fact that we're, uh, you know, this side of 23, the transfer window is closed, results are still going downhill for some of these teams and they're, they're really fighting for life. I, I would never bet my house on it that it's finished because I, you know, you're probably likely to lose. Um, I think Moise has been has been lucky, but I also think you know he's got the runs on the board, and I think they'll stick by him for now because they'll be okay. As for the other guys, honestly, I think you're going to see this continue, and if it doesn't happen now, it's going to happen at the end of the season anyway. So just imagine being a coach's agent right now. No, thank you. The 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 one with Moyes, he cracked me up because he said about five to six weeks ago that his team would not get relegated; they would finish in Europe. And sadly to say, it it hasn't really turned around that much, but I still think he's he's got a chance of keeping West Ham in the division. You look at Wolves, Lopetegui's come in, done fantastic. Notts Forest, they're never going to get rid of their manager. And Leicester City, we were talking about Rodgers at Leicester City, saying how you know there was the writing was on the wall. 
they've made some unbelievable signings in the last few weeks. Obviously, our very own Harry Suter as well going in there, who there is rave reviews about. I think he's turned it around, and I'm delighted for for him. Oh, you're claiming him now. You're claiming him now, Bridgie. Oh, Harry Suter. Oh, I mean, I've got. I mean, I've, you don't get to claim. I've Harry got both Suter. passports. Yeah. I can claim anybody. Hey, you got. <laughs> I think the only player. The, hey, he got ten percent out of the deal. So. <laughs> I think there's three managers, in my opinion, left that are under the fire. It's Bournemouth manager, obviously. Um, had a great interim turn when he got the job. I think he's under massive pressure, O'Neill. And then I look at the likes of. Chelsea manager. Now I really think that Potter could be the one. Um, I know. I, I think it's between them two. If we're going to see anybody else sacked this season, it's between Graham Potter and uh, Moniel at Bournemouth. I think everybody else is quite safe. Well, um, I, I think there's always more to come. I think this game never disappoints. Uh, there's always uh, new storylines uh, around every corner, and I, I uh, I'm, I'm in a, in Bridges' camp that uh, I think Graham Potter could be. On uh, unless you know some of the results uh, doesn't turn around pretty quickly, Champions League obviously is massive. You know, if they can get a run there, it might save his 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 uh, good old butt. But other than that, <laughs> I think uh, the pressure will be on massively. And one more on the managerial situation: Ange Postecoglou gets thrown into every conversation. Uh, he didn't categorically rule out Leeds, but I think he also know, knows how to play the media on a breakover in Scotland. But I wanted to ask about Kevin Musket. We saw him win the Japanese Super Cup at the weekend. His J-League title defence starts. It does seem as though his name doesn't get attached to many of these vacancies. Perhaps his time in Belgium has counted against him and he needs to prove himself with more trophies in Japan. But, Amy, how far away are we from Kevin Musket, who has such a long history in the English game with his time at Millwall and in, in British football with his time at Rangers? Uh, how long until Kevin Musket starts appearing on these managerial shortlists every time there's a, a vacancy available for a new gaffer? I think the one advantage Kevin Musket has is Ange Postacoglu has already done it and opened the door for him. So I think it'll be uh, less th- time than we saw with Ange, but I do think he still needs to get a few more runs on the board and um, you know grow the international respect um, that is required to make that jump. I don't think it'll happen next season. I think he needs to, as you said, I think he needs to defend his title and I think he'll need to do that well. Um, winning the, the cup recently really helps with, you know, setting his side up for a great season. And I think if that continues, maybe at the end of next season, we'll start to see some movement. Uh, will it be into the top flight straight away? Of course not. But this is the, the coaching journey. It's quite similar to the player journey, isn't it? You've got to go places, you've got to win trophies, uh, you've got to get the runs on the board and then you've got to have someone just take that leap of faith in you well one of the Premier League legends and Leeds United ex-player Noel Whelan I was with him at the ground the other day doing the, the rounds in the, the the suites and meeting the fans and chatting to them and his question to me he said oh I played against that Kevin Musket he said he was an absolute animal I played with him as well he said I've just seen he's done fantastic <laughs> things in the J League how's his coaching been going and I basically was telling him how he was following the footsteps of Ange Postacoglu he'd gone to Melbourne Victory and he obviously um, Noel knew about his winning the J League and things like that, winning the Super Cup. And he was so you know there's, there is a lot of people over here taking notice now about what is going on in Asia, and especially when they're ex players that are involved as well. So his name had been mentioned at Leeds United. However, it wasn't with a hierarchy; it was with the the ex players um, looking out for for each other as well. Let's move on to Liverpool, and after their two 0 win against Everton. Well, perhaps they are starting to turn things around, but they face a huge run of fixtures. Newcastle this weekend, two legs against Real Madrid in the Champions League, Crystal Palace, and then Manchester United. So we're going to learn a lot about Liverpool if we didn't know a heap about them already. Amy Duggan, where are Liverpool at at the moment? Is it evident bad or are Liverpool now good again? Uh, Liverpool is not good. Have a look at where they are on the table, Tay. It's a, it's a shocking season for them. Uh, Says no the Manchester fan United fan. be happy. Uh, cl- <laughs> <laughs> of course, but I'm going to be honest totally with you. Totally biased. When I see these big... <laughs> When I see these big names like Chelsea and Liverpool sitting mid-table, ninth and 10th, it's shocking to me. Um, I know someone has to own those places and when teams like, you know, your Newcastle are just flying along, um, then I understand it. But at the same time, you know, there's some gaps in the middle there which you're like, oh, it's not as close as you think. Um, Are they coming back for Champions League football? I doubt it very much. Um, I doubt it very much. And that's going to be a shock in itself. But Will they beat Newcastle? I bloody hope so, so I can sit here and talk to Bridgie about it next week. 
I, I, you know, I think there's it's somewhere down down the middle. I think we we saw the bat of of Liverpool. I think they had, which they've had so many times this season, a bad start. Uh, Everton, you know, that turning point where Tarnovsky hits the post and and Liverpool go straight down uh, and and score. I think was was the turning point. Uh, I think we saw some some good performances. I thought Nunez, with all the criticism, I thought he was good. The the young kid Bajic in in midfield, uh, Gakpo getting his first goal. Um, so so you know there's positives, but to say that they've turned the corner, I think will be way way too soon. I think the you know the the Newcastle game is massive. Uh, they're still within a shot of Europe, so uh, they need to win at Newcastle, and then. You know, Real Madrid, I think, will be a tall task for them. And, and you know, they can potentially expose what Everton really couldn't in, in that game. Uh, I still think they're vulnerable for sure. Well, Everton's like 18th on the table, right? And in this game, I think Liverpool had 15 shots, maybe only six on target the whole time. And poor old Everton had six shots and one shot on target. So um, it's the statistics can sometimes skew how a game looks. And I think the scoreline you know, it is the scoreline, but should it have only been two? Probably not. With, you know, the the majority of possession, with more shots on goal, they need to be more efficient. They just haven't been able to put it together this season. And when you've got a coach like Jürgen and you've got the player roster that they have, it's I don't think it's good enough. Bridgie, uh, Newcastle's form, it is starting to tail off just a little bit. It's not bad form because they're not losing, but it has softened a bit. Uh, are they no longer flavour of the month? Or is, is this uh, Liverpool game a chance for some sort of rejuvenation of their own Champions League qualification hopes? You've just answered the question. They haven't, they're haven't. unbeaten, so they can't be having a bad run of games. There's two big things that have happened, Teo. Um, the region is absolutely buzzing um, because, obviously, Newcastle are in a, a League Cup final. They're taking on Manchester United um, in a couple of weeks' time. So, you know, you can, you can expect the, the fans and everybody's getting carried away with that in the region. The players might have taken their sight off the game a little bit, but there's been one massive influence and one change. There was a guy got red-carded in the League Cup, and that was Bruno Gimresh, and he has been the player of the season because everything Newcastle do in the build-up play goes through this guy. He, he's In the final third, he unlocks doors with his passes, his vision, his goals, and Newcastle have really, really missed him. Um, I've got to be honest, and I think the 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 thing for Newcastle United that they're really happy about is that he, he served his suspension in the league games and he's going to be available for the League Cup. So I, I can see there's a couple of couple of points as to why they've done that, but again, they've gone unbeaten. I think Eddie Howe was really just relieved that they didn't get beat when he was returning to his old club in Bournemouth. Um, but they, you know, they, they got themselves they got themselves out of trouble. Kevin uh, Trippier saved them on the line, and and I can see them really going out against Liverpool uh, and and having a show of it. But I think Liverpool will do them. But I'm going to take Newcastle in the League Cup. There you go, because Bruno will be back. Yeah, but Bridgie, I mean. You, you've drawn with Palace, West Ham, uh, and then Bournemouth. I mean, that should have been nine points from nine, shouldn't it? Don't say you've drawn. I don't support them. I support Tottenham Hotspur, mate. Don't, <laughs> don't put me into the you category. <laughs> I had many good years at Sunderland as well, so Tommy will be thinking, oh, my God, this is horrible. Um, yeah, what a, yeah, of course, the, the results have dipped, but that, that is, that, that's the quality now you're seeing Newcastle. A few years ago, with them results, they would have been fantastic results for Newcastle. They're sitting in fourth. They're two points above Tottenham Hotspur. Obviously, Man United have come from absolutely nowhere and blindsided everybody because Ten Hag's doing such a good job. Um, and Newcastle, like I say, European football is the vision for them at the end of the season. They're still, they're still well above expectation levels from the the new consortium um, and from the fans. Everybody's, like I say, is just riding this wave and they're, they're absolutely loving it. So, mate, the results are still in their favour, in my opinion. Let's move on to Manchester United. The deadline for bids to buy the club, at least uh, reportedly the deadline, was set for the end of this week. Qatar are definitely in the mix. And before I come to you, Amy Duggan, we need to go through just some of the figures being bandied about because $4 uh, $4 billion, Mm. I I should say, uh, potentially $4.5 billion, is the price that has been mooted for Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, who, if you're not familiar, is the sheikh that handed the World Cup trophy and the bisht to Leo Messi on stage. His estimated net worth is $276 billion, and, of course, he is attached to Qatar. Amy Duggan, um, how are you feeling at the moment about the potential sale of Manchester United? 
Well, this is such a complex, deep question, Teo, with so many layers to it. I, I kind of feel like I need more time to think about the actual answer I want to give you. But um, I'll give you some first thoughts. The first thoughts are, uh, I think, in people's heads, you only want to see your club sold if it's for the betterment of the club, right? So that's your first question. Is this going to be better? Is it going to be worse? Is there going to be someone who wants to come in and change everything and control everything? It's always scary. Um, There's also so many similar examples of, you know, Qatari investment in sports. So if we, we want to open the door to the conversation about sports washing, I don't really want to go there. But what I will say is there are already so many examples of this happening in the game. Why are we only scrutinizing Manchester United, PSG, Portugal's Braga, there's the Barca sleeve sponsor, Melbourne City. Um, Off the top of my head, that's all I can think of. So for me, I think this is the question for me is what kind of journey are they on? Is it a self-improvement journey? Is it a journey of growth? Is it investment into areas of the game that we don't normally see? Yes, my personal values don't always align, but there are um, also aspects that I think you know, we need to be really careful when we start slinging mud because we have our own issues here in Australia. But if the sale goes through, and it's only if the sale goes through, I want to know things like, are they going to invest in their women's side more? Is their academy going to see an upturn? Are they going to invest in infrastructure? Because we know, you know, even Cristiano Ronaldo was really vocal about the fact that the club and um, its facilities and the stadium all need an an upgrade. Um, So those areas of business I'm really open-minded to. I hope that the investment, if it happens, is a good one. But the other question is, is do the fans really care? Do they really care where the money comes from? Are they still going to turn out, pull on the red jersey and support the players? Because ultimately, I think most of this game is about who's on the pitch and what's happening on the pitch. Well, Tommy, this is something we touched on with Kieran Maguire last week, where he mentioned that uh, some fans, Manchester City, Newcastle, United, they'd happily do away with financial fair play tomorrow because basically what they want is for the bottomless pockets of their owners to spend to find the best possible team on the pitch. Do you, do you feel as though that's the sentiment coming out of the Manchester United fan base and there may not be a great deal of pushback to being a, a Qatari-owned club? Uh, firstly, I just want to say to Amy that I love that you are mentioning the might of Melbourne City alongside PSG and Barcelona and Man United. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, and Manchester City. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything, Tommy, but that did cross my Good mind. Good pick up. Good pick up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, love, I love it. We've got to promote Australian football. Um, but yeah, no, you know, again, it's such a complex deal. And, and United have actually come out and, and, and said that they're looking for strategic opportunities. Uh, so if a sale is even on the cards, uh, I, I don't think so because the, you know, the ownership of, of Manchester United, at least 69% of it, is in the Glazer family. So it's spread over. Um, you know, five or six people. Uh, some wants to sell. Some some want to stay within the club. Can they agree? I think it's going to be the big question. Um, and and then you have that you know massive gap and and debt uh, of of I think it's 1.5 billion Australian dollars that somebody has to come and fill before they can even start to invest. You know, I'm sure the fans would love, um, you know, someone to come in and obviously start spending, upgrading the stadium. As Amy said, uh, they need new facilities. Carrington, the training ground, uh, needs an upgrade. Women's facilities. Um, so, you know, for sure the fans want it. Um, and, and we've seen the, you know, the Kantari investment um, uh, you know they have come in and and done brilliant at you know um, at, at PSG. They bought PSG for 100 million euros and it's now worth 2.6 billion. Um, and they have made that into a, a global brand with everything that's gone on there. So uh, I think it all comes down to the price for them to get invested. You know they 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 five six. I think the Glazers probably want too much for it. Uh, and, and that's going to be the big question. Um, uh, and I'm sure the fans will be happy if, if the Qatari take over. But uh, if they will, is still my big question, Mark. I still think a stake will be sold and not the whole club. Amy, regardless of if it's Qatar or if it's a, a different bidder, a, a private one that hasn't uh, been disclosed to the media yet, there is some suggestion that Old Trafford might be knocked down and rebuilt completely. 
as a Manchester United fan who followed the club through its you know, one of its golden eras at the turn of the century and has kind of grown up, you know, with the theatre of dreams, how would that leave you feeling? Because obviously, you know, new stadium can change a club's identity for the better, but it can also, uh, perhaps in the case of Arsenal and the Emirates Stadium leaving Highbury or Spurs leaving White Hart Lane for the Tottenham Stadium, it, it can change the identity in ways that maybe create a disconnect with the club that was there before. Would you miss Old Trafford if the new owners had such a wealth of resources that they could actually undertake raising it and then building a totally new stadium in its replacement? Yeah, of course, Teo. It's it's a bittersweet conundrum of life, isn't it? But evolution is how we survive. Um, I hope they can hold on to it for a little bit longer. And I think the key to this is actually how the team is doing uh, on the pitch at the time that this happens because you need to be able to carry through the fandom and um, the experience and I guess the the grittiness of what happens on the pitch and carry through that culture and the history that comes with it. So, of course, you would miss the stadium. Do I think it's going to stand for the next 50 years? No, I'm not silly because the world evolves, we grow, we move on, we become more contemporary. And when you're seeing some of these, the amazing stadiums that can be built at the moment that create, you know, a better fan experience, a better game day experience, it's better for the players ultimately because the facility facilities are, are, are better and more contemporary. Um, you know, it would be a bittersweet moment, but as long as they're able to maintain the, the culture that came with the history, I think I'd be okay with that. Yeah, well, I'm hoping that it's um, Elon Musk that takes over because I want to see him producing some some robots that he can just charge up and put them on the field and see if they can perform better than what the current going to have bots current climate climate is. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who knows what he could do? He could come. We've got one robot. We've already got one. <laughs> but he could completely <laughs> destroy the whole dynamics <laughs> of this football club. You know, he's he's a, he's a madman. He's a genius. So um, who knows? But what I will say, anything that comes in that people are want to invest in it in a club, Man United is a global brand, no doubt about it. I've seen it and witnessed it myself um, around the world. Um, and and you know, is it's it's a, such an attractive investment for anybody. And I think if the people that we are talking about come in, it's only good for Manchester United. Um, and it should scare a lot, a lot of people. And like Amy said before, the fans on the fans will be bothered for a certain extent. And then when they see the people that take over doing the right thing, like what's happening at Newcastle United, there was a lot of animosity. There still is a bit of animosity, but they're slowly winning everybody over because in the manner in which they're conducting themselves and in the process they are doing, it's not it's not gun ho. It's a long project and a long vision. And I'd like to think that that would happen at Man United as well. You're listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. A quick break, and then more of the Gagan Pod. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the Gagan Pod. We've got former Premier League stars Michael Bridges and Thomas Sorensen and former Matilda Amy Duggan with us today. Let's talk a bit of La Liga, but also just uh, the Spanish football situation in general because, and uh, if you blinked, you may have missed this, Real Madrid are now the World Club champions. They have succeeded at Chelsea. They beat Al-Hilal of Saudi Arabia in the final and uh, it wasn't really covered in the Catalan press because Barcelona going 11 points clear at the top of the league seemed to be a much, much bigger deal. Thomas Sorensen, Real Madrid, it, it kind of went under the radar a bit, maybe because uh, the South American champions, Flamengo, got knocked out in the earlier rounds, so we didn't get the Europe versus South America clash, which is basically what the Club World Championship has been built on. Just how much jeopardy is this tournament in? Because we hear every year that Gianni Infantino wants to expand it, wants to turn it into a 24 or even a 48-team tournament with clubs from all around the world, which would inevitably potentially open the door to a team from even Australia competing in a tournament like this. But it just seems as though it did not move the metre at all. Uh, definitely not. Um, I, I must say, I uh, didn't watch much of it. Uh, watched the results and the highlights, and, and that was it. And I don't think it captured anyone's imagination and that's Infantino's problem uh you know he's 
He's in a mass, massive power struggle with uh, UEFA, who's who's taken over. Massive success with the Champions League. Money rolling in. Uh, you know, obviously expanding it with the the Conference League, and, and he's looking for a bit of that pie as well. And and that's why he's now. Uh, you know, that's been his baby since he he, he got into the job. Is is uh, obviously mon- more money for FIFA and. Uh, you know the World Cup. He tried to push it for every two years. I don't think that's going to happen. So, so the only card he can really play is this Club World Championship. Um, and obviously, you know, if he can get it to to twenty four teams, uh, with you would expect 10, 12 European teams in there. Yes, there'll be uh, <laughs> a lot of interest. Uh, uh, but in this current format, uh, I think it's a it's a dead fish in the water, and I I, I don't think it's it's going to get far. When we talk about Real Madrid, do we ever say how many World Club Championships they won? It's not. I don't even think it's on the list of accolades, is it? Like they don't even pay attention to it. And um, I, I think the other problem with this at the moment is it has often been the Champions League winner, certainly in, in modern times, that have won, or more recent times, that have won this, um, this club championship as well. But you're right, Infantino said, I think only in December last year, he's looking at 32 teams by 2025 or 2026. It's... Uh, it's crazy here that what we're not focusing on is actually the players. What concerns me is if we keep opening all these tournaments up and these competitions up is that we will need robots, Bridgie, because um, the, the players will not be able to handle this load. Either that or we'll end up a bit more like cricket where we're being forced down one competition and not the other. And we've got a team that represents, you know, Real Madrid in, in one part of competition and a team that represents them in another. We'll end up like cricket in that where we're forced to specialise. And the other thing that will happen if we keep this and World Cups and everything else and a Super League and all the rest of it, these players are going to get burnt out. Well, Amy, you raise a good point about the, the FIFA calendar here. Bridgie, uh, did you even pay attention to the Club World Championship if it expanded to 32 teams and became a genuine competitor to the Champions League or maybe was FIFA's preemptive uh, way of getting ahead of Super League? Is that something that could pique your interest? I'm totally with Amy on this one. I can't remember. I couldn't tell you who. I didn't even know Real Madrid had done it. I didn't even know who won last year or the year before. That might be my my ignorance. I it doesn't it doesn't entertain me. I'm really really sorry. I think I saw more of it uh, when I was living in Australia. Um, when I think the I, I was took a real interest when West Sydney Wanderers were involved in it um, at one point um, after winning the the Champions League. In Asia, that that was when I was really keen because obviously I was following West Sydney Wanderers' progress to think how well they'd done. But I've, over here, living back in the UK, I've really got no interest. For me, it's all about the European football, the Champions League football, and um, yeah, it's that. Like I say, I'm I'm pleased Tommy and Amy had some info on that because I was really going to be paddling and struggling. Tommy, is this is this evidence that you know a, a mooted Super League might have a few more issues than? Uh, the club owners perhaps assume if they all move together sure people might follow but is the prestige of a European Cup is the history of a Premier League as important as the teams that play in it and that's why we we see something like the Club World Cup struggle to get the cut through or is it purely that Real Madrid was playing Al-Hilal and and weren't playing against you know Chelsea in the final? You know, I think uh, you look at fans. You know, they they follow clubs, and um, so so the clubs has have the power. So wherever the club goes, the fans go, and the interest goes. I, I think, you know, the Champions League is only fantastic because we got all the best teams in there. Um, so if a Super League was created, the Champions League would lose its, you know, its glory. Um, you know, so. You know, it's it's about the structure. It's about the integrity of the game. I think it, it's about the long-term sustainability. I think, you know, so whatever suits... Uh, and I think that's where UEFA and, and where uh, the, the whole clubs are seem to at least, uh, some of them, <laughs> most of them, be, be on the same page that, you know, it can't just be to the benefit of, of, of 10 teams. It, it has to be to the benefit of, of football and... and uh, you know every country, and there has to be a trickle down effect of of money and development and everything else. Um, so so yeah, I, you know I, I can't see this happening. Um, this World Cup, thirty two teams, uh, like Amy said, there, there's there's you know where where are the players gonna get their off time and and injuries and and everything else. And uh, with the power that UEFA has now, I think it, it's gonna stay in Europe uh, f- for sure, at least for the foreseeable future. 
Now, I did mention one of the reasons for the lack of cut-through in Spain is Barcelona keep winning. They're now 11 points clear of Real Madrid at the top of La Liga, and Real Madrid only have one game in hand, so they can only close the gap to eight points. Amy, uh, is it too early to say that the title race is over, not least because Barcelona have the uh, Europa League uh, tie against Manchester United coming up, and their priorities in Europe may start to interfere with their priorities in Spain? That's a good point. I just hope that uh, Manchester United can turn the turn the tables on the statistics here because 13 games between them, six wins have actually gone to Barca, by the way. So, uh, And the last four times they've faced off, they've also gone to Barca. But their form heading into this is a little bit different. And uh, just as a point of interest for those that like great players, uh, Robert Lewandowski will line up against Man U for the first time if he plays in that game. So great headlines there. But what does that mean for La Liga? Um, gosh, it's weird to see Barcelona sitting 11 points clear after all the discussion that we had about the financial turmoil, about players coming in, players coming out, um, about, you know, players that maybe should be playing for Manchester United that are still playing for Barcelona. And we can go down that path a little bit later if we want with Frankie. But the point is, I think at the moment they are grinding out wins in La Liga. They're not... Uh, you know, playing the football that we're used to seeing from them. They're a whole, I think that's like the fifth or their sixth one nil win over Villarreal um, on Sunday to extend that lead. They will probably win, but it's never over till the fat lady sings. And I think we should all, you know, be open to that. And I like it to be a little tighter than this. I think that keeps their interest in the league and the excitement in the league and eyeballs uh, on the pitch, but also on the screen. Um, It'll be a first league title since 2019 and and good on them if they can take a trophy after all the off-field drama that they had to face at the beginning of the season to just get on and get the job done, which is what they've been doing. Time to talk women's football now and the WSL. Well, Chelsea had an amazing weekend and they didn't even play. Arsenal lost 2-1 to Manchester City. Manchester United kept top top spot with a 2-1 win against Tottenham, but it wasn't the most convincing performance. Chelsea now have a five-point lead over Arsenal, who are down in fourth. Uh, Amy, before we talk about Chelsea against Man United in the title battle, can we put the line through Arsenal? Is their title challenge over? Yeah, I I really hate to say this because we obviously have Steph Catley and um, Caitlin Ford playing for them, but City were by far the better side um, and also really fired up after coming off their Continental Cup loss. Lauren Hemp scored in the fourth minute. Chloe Kelly made it to two English national team players. Arsenal are really struggling without Miedemar and Mead, and I think that's the the kicker for them when you lose those two big players that control everything for them you really had to have a lot more depth and quality to stand up and they just haven't been able to find that but um smiling still because you know Manchester United on top spot with that win over Tottenham I know they weren't necessarily convincing the best goal of the game actually well actually the best two goals of the game came from Tottenham because uh there was a great runaway quick free kick um, but also the the own goal was a great goal if you're a striker. So Manchester United were probably a little bit lucky with that one, but hey, they're sitting on top. And as you said, Arsenal drops to fourth. They're five points behind Chelsea, six points behind Man U, or, or even more, maybe seven now. Um, and so that's, um, yeah, I, I think for them, the season's not going to have the silverware they wanted to see. We certainly won't see it coming down to the last game between Chelsea and Arsenal um, of the season like we did last year. Amy, I am not ruling Chelsea out. I'm hoping that Sammy Kirk, she, she got a, they've got a massive, massive opportunity. Chelsea, I'm, I'm taking them. They've got Brighton over Albion this weekend. The big one against Man United the week after, and then they play Man City. And I'm saying they're going to get nine points in them three games. They're going to blow the, blow the title open, and nobody's going to stop Chelsea. There you go. Well, I wanted to talk about the relegation battle as well, Amy, because Leicester City have now closed the gap at the bottom of the league with another win, and it means that there are four teams now separated by just three points, including uh, Brighton and Hove Albion, who had Lydia Williams, the Matildas goalkeeper, debut, but it was in a 6-2 loss to Aston Villa. So we've got Spurs on nine, Brighton on eight, Reading on seven, and now Leicester on six. This looked like it was uh, a long way away uh, during the most recent break uh, over the winter period uh, in England. But Leicester, with a couple of wins, have managed to close it right back up. If you had to pick right now, who actually is getting relegated out of those four teams? Or could even Liverpool, on 11 points, get dragged in and make it a five-team battle to avoid last place? 
Oh, wow. Who's going down? Is that what you're asking me, Tay? I think Reading's, Reading's going to go, that's for sure. If you want to be totally safe, Reading don't have any Australians, so you can pick them if you want. <laughs> oh, that, that's what I said. Well, I went there straight away, you might have noticed. <laughs> Reading are going down for sure. I hope it's not Leicester. I feel like it might be Brighton, but um, I, I did feel for Lydia Williams because, you know, she, she'd she been with, um, with City for a while and then obviously over at Arsenal as well and... Um, made the big change to get time on the paddock and ahead of a Women's World Cup, you want your goalkeeper to be busy. She debuts for Brighton. They lose six goals put past her in that game and that should have been a whole lot tighter for her. So has she made the right decision? I I can't really answer that question. But Leicester, let's have a look at Leicester because they signed a couple of Aussies, hadn't won a game until the Aussies turned up, by the way. Um, Courtney Nevin, I think, was in a bit of shock after her first week, but did get on the board for an assist. They've now picked up, uh, as you said, three wins, and they had none before the Aussies turned up. So I'm kind of rooting for them in, a, in an underdog way. I hope that I hope that Leicester can stay up. I'm hoping that Leicester stay up as well, Amy, and I've got one for you here. Breaking news, Southampton men's team get relegated from the Premier League and coming up into the Premier League next season, Southampton's women's. They're sitting third at the moment. <laughs> they just beat Sunderland 1-0 at the weekend. I was over there having a watch of that game. Last five minutes, they got themselves a 1-0 win. I'm taking them to get promoted this season into the WSL. So so we'll have what we've had with you and the English team, Bridgie, where you've pulled off your men's English jersey and you've pulled on your women's one and we'll see the same with Southampton supporters next week. You know, season. the lionesses, they're in me heart. <laughs> <laughs> one other club football question, Amy, before we get on to the internationals, many of them coming up on Optus Sport, and that is the Champions League draw because Arsenal will play Bayern Munich. Arsenal out of form very much so, but they did get out of their group. Chelsea, though... They got the defending champions, Leon. Now, we were sitting here saying when Chelsea got Real Madrid and, P- so good. And, and PSG in their group that they had the group of death. They got through that. They knocked Real Madrid out along the way. But now they have to play against Leon, the perpetual powerhouse of women's football. Will Chelsea, Amy, just uh, continue their role or is this the end of the road for them in the Champions League? Now you're making me pick between my favourite players. This is really unfair. All I'm saying is it's setting up an absolute mouth-watering clash. If Chelsea wants to continue to prove that they're a powerhouse club in women's football, they need to win this one. Uh, Leon have already got the runs on the board and clearly, you know, what a talented side. But all I'm saying, even if you're a football neutral, please, please jump on board for this one because this is like the cream of the crop facing off against each other. Um, I'm really struggling to pick a winner because I want to see Ellie Carpenter actually start or, or get you know some really long, decent minutes out there. Um, she's obviously just made her way back from injury and uh, I think she's, she's a massive ad for their side. But I actually think Chelsea might get the job done here and cause what would be an upset in the, in the, in the world of women's football. All right, to close the Gegen pod, we're going to have some predictions. So look into your crystal balls. Some of these may be tough picks for you, but uh, we'll finish with Arsenal and Manchester City, which is 6.30am Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Thursday. So just bear in mind that that one's the last question I'll ask. But we have to start with the World Cup playoffs. They're all live on Optus Sport. They're taking place in New Zealand, and many of these teams will be trying to qualify for a FIFA Women's World Cup for the very first time. Amy, I'm going to leave your picks until last so that the guys don't copy who you think is going to win. (laughs) Michael Bridges and Thomas Sorensen. Portugal will play the winner of Cameroon versus Thailand. Bridgie, Cameroon versus Thailand, who you got? I am taking Thailand to win this one all day long. There you go. I can't say why, but I'm going to take them. Now, listen, is Stadjik still in charge of Thailand? No, he's in charge of the he's Philippines. Philippines. Yeah, we'll just count, we'll just we'll just get rid of that segment. <laughs> uh, Tommy, oh, well, Tommy, who you, who, who you got? I love this. Cameroon versus Thailand. Who you got? Uh, I, I'm going to go against Bridgie here. Uh, my 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 research of, of these two teams says that uh, you know Cameroon. Uh, you know, this is a, uh, you know, I'm you're, a, I'm you're a, way ahead of Bridgie because yeah. you've actually done okay. research, Tommy. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm picking Cameroon in the first one. Uh, do you think there's any chance to beat Portugal, Amy, or do you think Portugal goes to the World Cup? 
I think that'll be a big question mark for Cameron and it'll probably defend on the day. But I do think if, uh, if we look at paper and we look at performance and we look at past results, then Portugal should get the job done. All right, uh, Bridgie, back to you. Senegal versus Haiti, who you got? I've done my research on this one. I've been reading all the papers around the world, all the highlights. I am taking Senegal on this one. Four superior team. Tommy, Senegal or Haiti? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm with Bridgie. Uh, you know, again, just on the back of, I can't see Haiti having many players, uh, you know, compared to Senegal. Um, so, yeah. It's 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 gonna be a tough one though with Chile coming up in in the uh, in the deciding match. Yeah, and I'm just gonna stick with it. Doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter, Teo, because they won't beat Chile. Because nobody's getting Chile through. Will be going to the World <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Now I'll, I'll ask you to just tell me which of these four teams comes out of this bracket because one of them is going to play in the World Cup. Chinese Taipei versus Paraguay, and then the winner of that match plays Papua New Guinea versus Panama. So this this really is World Cup stuff here. Who have you got? Chinese Taipei, Paraguay, Papua New Guinea, or Panama? Bridgie, who's going to make the World Cup? I would love to see Papua New Guinea do it. However, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm going to have to go with the team Paraguay, and I'm hoping that I'm correct, Amy, with my prediction there. Paraguay to go through. Yeah, no, this is where you would love to see just some surprise. You know, it's a one game. You know, I would love to see uh, a Panama. What a story that would be uh, for them to get to the World Cup. Oh, as Bridget said, the Papua New Guinea. So I'm, I'm just going to throw one out there and say Panama. I actually don't know. I was looking at this going, oh, this is so interesting and how it's going to line up. I don't, I, again... This is one of those things where the, you know, FIFA has opened this up to more teams to allow more exposure at the top level and to allow us to learn about all the players um, that hail from these nations and also how they play and to grow the game globally. So really for me, it doesn't... I've had more exposure to the Papua New Guinean side and to the Chinese Taipei side. Obviously, uh, as a Matilda, we used to actually play against these sides um, when we were part of Oceania many, many moons ago. So I feel like I'm maybe swaying towards the the Chinese Taipei side, but I just think I think we might see a surprise here. And I do think Bridgie, you might be right, and Paraguay might um, make their way through on this one. Ultimately, though, when they hit that big stage here in Australia. The challenge that awaits these sides, any of these sides that go through, including Portugal and Chile, is a ginormous one. And that's courtesy just to the draw and the way that the cards fill. Um, the nations are going to face the likes of the USA. Um, but to have the experience as a player to step into a tournament like this is the real, I think, heartwarming part of it that players that would never have generally been able to play at a World Cup will get to be part of the greatest show on earth. Amy, could we see in the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand, could we see some some big results because of the, the, the gap between the teams and, yep. the, and the quality, like you say, with the international experience? Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think, you know, we saw that in France. Uh, certainly the USA 13-0 scoreline was an interesting one and opened up a whole lot of um, debates over the quality gap, um, you know, the top and the bottom, the investment that's in the game from, you know, some of the top nations like England, like America, uh, like Australia, Canada, where we're investing millions of dollars into our national teams and we're playing against minnows of world football that are just beginning their international, um, you know, World Cup journey. And, and, you know, people got a bit upset at Alex Morgan with her tea drinking uh, celebrations when when they did very well in that game. But I think it's part of the journey. Part of the journey is just being exposed to how big the gap actually is and what you have to do and being realistic about setting your goals. You know, for some of these teams, just making the World Cup, they've already smashed their country's goals straight out of, you know, straight out of the park. And they would hope to replicate that next time and then grow on that experience and maybe win a World, a World Cup game. Yeah, the only, that's quality. Good answer. Because the only reason I asked that, I remember when San Marino were playing the European qualification games and things like that, and the World Cup qualifiers, they used to get smashed, and it used to be quite humiliating, and embarrassing. But like you say, 
and when you get that exposure and that experience over the years, you know, the more money is developed in them areas and them clubs for coaches and for players. And you don't see San Marino getting beat by 10, 15, 20 nil anymore. And it's, it's you know, they're still not making the qualification, but it's nice to see that there's not that massive divide. And I think that's really good for the for the, for the the women's game that it's, you know, it's going to get that for a lot more teams um, having the experience to do so. And I did promise that we would talk about Arsenal against Manchester City to finish. If you're listening to the pod on Wednesday, this match is at 6.30 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time on Thursday morning. So we've left it until last, just in case you're listening to the pod on Thursday or during the course of the weekend. All right, let's go around the table. Uh, you each get a minute, uh, up to a minute, to tell me who is going to win Arsenal versus Manchester City and why and what it is going to do to the dynamic of the title race. Michael Bridges, lead us off. Got my crystal ball like you said here, Theo. I'm just giving it a little little rub now. I'm looking into it. It's going to be a, it's, it's a mouth-watering tie. Um, however, I am going to take... I'm taking Manchester City to come out on top of this one. Pep Guardiola, the, the quality at his disposal and the fact that still... Still, people are saying, oh, Haaland is changing. Not just yourself, Theo. Haaland is not giving Manchester United the dy- uh, Manchester City the dynamics that he should have done. He's scoring goals. He's creating goals. He came off to, to Ratman Cottonwall. I think he's going to be the difference in this tie. And I, I really do feel for Arsenal because they should have been. They're only, what, three points clear at present, I do believe. It should have been five. Because the goal that they had not given, and Arteta should be fuming, there's big things over here. The referees have apologised for the VAR cock-up that happened. We've seen that in Australia many times when we were guinea-pigging the system. Um, this was down to human error. Thankfully, they have come out and apologised. That does Arsenal no favours. Um, and, you know, I would be absolutely seething. And I just think that they're starting. I think Arsenal are going to start to feel the pinch a little bit more. Man City have been there and done it before. They know how to win. And they've got the best manager in the world. And I'm taking them to get one over. It's almost like Luke Skywalker against um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi really? is Pep Guardiola. <laughs> Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker is the one. He's been the understudy. Arteta's been the understudy of Obi-Wan. He will have his day sometime. It won't be this season and it will not be in this game. Oh, Bridget, I uh, I love the analogy. Um, I, uh, I I hope that Haaland plays. <laughs> I hope, he, obviously, he came off with a, a thigh injury. Um, you know, the you know let, let's hope he does. And, and really, um, you know, Man City have got... Arsenal over the last six games they've won uh, every single one they've won the last three at the Emirates you know so um, I, I think as well it comes down to to you know experience having been in this situation um, and they're coming from you know from from behind as well so it, it's going to be a very tight one I, I think it's going to be a similar one to what we saw in the FA Cup uh, you know a tight 1-0 uh, you know so I see Man City as well winning, and it would be great for the excitement. You know, I don't want to see Arsenal running away 10-12 like we see in Spain. I want it to be tight, and uh, that needs a Man City win in this one. Uh, I thank you for reading out all those statistics, Tom, so that I don't have to, because when you look (laughs) at this form on paper, this is all blue. It's all one way, right? Manchester City should win. But for me, this is a case of heart versus head. My head, all the information, all the data, all the stats... um, Haaland playing or not playing. I hope he does play, by the way, too, because I think the best thing about this is to see all the greatest players battling it out and no excuses for whichever way the result goes. I don't want VAR to intervene. I don't want someone to say they should have won because they didn't have Haaland or, you know, I don't want any of that. I just want to see the best players out on the pitch battling it out. My heart tells me, my heart wants me to go for Arsenal and wants them to win just because I feel like it would be nice to snap um, that losing streak to this side. I know I can't believe I'm saying it either, Bridgie. But my head tells me Manchester City will get this one done. Who knows, perhaps we'll see a draw, but I think Manchester City will win 2-0. Michael Bridges, Amy Duggan, Thomas Sorensen, thanks for joining us this week on the Gagan Pod and uh, looking forward to seeing the result of your predictions. Thanks, Teal. Thank you very much, everybody. Thoroughly enjoyed it once again. And happy Valentine's Day from England. I know it's not in Australia. We're doing it. It might be dated, but I'm, I'm having a fantastic Valentine's Day. So love to everybody out there, all the listeners. We went to Brecky too. It was lovely. <laughs> 
Yes, a big thank you to Michael Bridges, Amy Duggan and Thomas Sorensen. So, as you just heard, the Premier League has the most important match of the season so far, live on Thursday at 6.30am Australian Eastern Daylight Time when Arsenal plays Manchester City. The Gunners are also back from 11.30pm on Saturday night away to Aston Villa. You can see Chelsea against Southampton and Manchester City against Nottingham Forest as part of a six-game goal rush from Sunday at 2am. Liverpool plays Newcastle at 4.30am on Sunday and then you can catch Manchester United's match against Leicester City from 1am on Monday and Tottenham against West Ham from 3.30am all times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. La Liga has a Thursday game as well with Real Madrid playing Elche at 7am Australian Eastern Daylight Time and you get a double dose of Los Merengues because this weekend they're also on at 7am on Sunday away to Osasuna. Barcelona play Monday morning at 7am against Cadiz. All times Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And even though the WSL is on an international break, make sure you check out Optus Sport for all the details about live football, including the FIFA Women's World Cup playoffs and New Zealand's friendlies against Portugal and Argentina. Make sure you subscribe to The Gegen Pod wherever you get your podcasts and rate us five stars while you're there. I've been your host, Teo Pelizzeri. Thanks again for listening to the Optus Sport Football Podcast. This was The Gegen Pod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.